Good afternoon and welcome to the 197th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of COVID-19 vaccines and vaccination with Dr. Peter Hotez. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 7th, 2021, there are 1,889,952 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 21,354,027 cases in the United States and 362,037 deaths in the United States. Yesterday, a single day record of deaths was reached according to the New York Times, 3,964 people in the United States died yesterday from COVID-19. I'm gonna turn to our discussion, just jump right in today and I'm very excited to have Dr. Peter Hotez on today to visit. Let me just bring him on and introduce him. He probably needs no introduction considering um, all of the really crucial public science communication work he's been doing. But let me introduce him. Dr. Peter Hotez is Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development and endowed chair in tropical pediatrics. He's a vaccine scientist who led the development of vaccines to prevent and treat neglected tropical diseases and coronavirus infections. A new Texas children's COVID-19 vaccine is being accelerated in India now undergoing clinical testing. Professor Hotez obtained his undergraduate degree from Yale and his MD and PhD from Weill Cornell Medical College and Rockefeller University. He's the author of more than 550 scientific articles indexed on PubMed and four single author books. He is also an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and has been honored by a PAHO, WHO, Research America, Benai Brith, American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene and other organizations. You see him frequently on major news outlets. I feel like I see him almost every day. I don't know how he has time to keep up with everything he's doing. Dr. Hotez, thanks so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Uh, thanks so much for uh, having me today. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there. Well, I'm calling from uh, Houston, Texas. And, uh, you know, Texas has been hit pretty hard uh, this year. Um, it's been one of the worst affected states. It's been about uh, um, almost 2 million cases, which of course, we know is an underestimate by about a fact, factor of four or five. So we've had maybe a quarter of the state uh, affected so far by uh, COVID-19 and, you know, getting up to 30,000 deaths. So one of the worst in the country in terms of death. So it's been a pretty tragic situation here. Is there a lot of variability in, in Texas between urban and rural areas? 
Well, it certainly started out as an urban uh, epidemic, and then it moved in, like many other parts of the country, moved into the rural area. Over the fall, um, it's been really hitting West Texas very hard and up in the panhandle, but now it's pretty much moving across the state. It's in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in a big way, and and South Texas now really bad along the Mexico border. So if you remember over the summer, there was just a humanitarian catastrophe that went on there, very much like you know Central America or Mexico, and then uh, and eased up a bit, and now it's back there as well. Houston is a little different because all of the numbers are going up. We have that massive Texas Medical Center, so mm -hmm. it can handle the surges a little better. But up in West Texas, the Panhandle, South Texas. You know, like almost like Los, An Los Angeles ER is getting overwhelmed and that sort of thing. I keep a close eye on Texas being from there myself and most of my family still uh, living there. And one of my sisters, actually, who's a public school teacher, just got her first vaccination a couple of days ago. Been so much uncertainty as to whether or not um, vaccines were going to be made available. I know you're tracking that very closely as well. And in fact, I saw a news piece, I saw you getting vaccinated in a photograph there um can you give us a little bit of a, a sense of some of the struggles within texas about vaccine delivery and also um any hesitancy out there in texas in terms of receiving these vaccines um yeah it's been uh a pretty um it, it's 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 the same catastrophic situation here in texas as it is everywhere else we're just not geared up to vaccinate the population i mean when you look at the, our numbers, you know, the population of Texas is 30 million and we have to vaccinate two thirds, two thirds, three quarters of the country and interrupt transmission. So we have to interrupt, uh, stop transmission by vaccinating about 24 million Texans uh, over the next eight months. So that's one, you know, 1.5 million Texans every month. I have to check that math first. No, I'm sorry, three million Texans mm -hmm. uh, every month, and so that's uh, uh, divided by yeah, thirty is about a hundred. You know, a hundred. It's ten thousand, a hundred thousand Texans every day, every day. and um, and some of the vaccines are two doses, so we're talking one hundred and fifty thousand uh, Texans a, d a day, and you know we're just not going to have the bandwidth for that. So. So, so, in other words, so we we're going to have to put some new, new, new structure in place. This is a, a live broadcast, but it's also a historical project and putting an archive in place. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your day yesterday. Uh, I, at one point yesterday, I, like I'm sure many millions of Americans got my family together and said, turn on this, turn on the TV because history is happening. What was your day like? Well, like every day, you know, trying to keep up with the vaccinations and in our vaccine program, we're trying to accelerate a low cost vaccine for the world. We're scaling up to make a billion doses. Uh, this is being led by Biological E in Hyderabad, India and testing across India. So on constant Zoom calls regarding how we move that forward in the science of that to try to get this uh, into phase three clinical trials and then discussing with Indonesia and Israel and all over the world. And, and so that's the day job. And then talking to the nation about COVID-19 and, and, you know, on the various cable networks and on, you know, CNN and MSNBC and BBC, and then, 
and then more chaos on top of that. So every day is, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's working hard. I think that's not new. It's, it's the level of intensity. That's so, that's always been so elevated because everything has such high consequences in terms of whether you're saying the wrong thing to the nation or making a mistake in the vaccine. So that there's that level of pressure and intensity. And then top of that, you have the, a coup in Washington. It's, <laughs> it's like, you know, what next? You know, it's like, yeah. it's like a, you know, a badly made movie about the future and, uh, but it's really happening. But it's very hard to disentangle. I've stopped trying really to disentangle the, the disaster of the pandemic from the economic impact, the racial injustice that we've seen. I mean, it's all sort of one big disaster, but I wonder if I could draw you out a little bit just about yesterday and, and, and the administration, because I I don't know, you know, yesterday was not, people were not protesting against mask wearing, but, you know, the level of anger in the country somehow to me must be connected with this pandemic. I mean, you have a long history of paying attention to pandemic and epidemic. Have you ever seen this level of, of anger? And what do you think about the connection between the politics of it and what we saw yesterday and what people have been asked to do this year to fight this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the th themes of 2020 and now moving into 2021 has been this rise of anti-science. And it has a, you know, it's not unique to the U.S., but it has a unique flavor to the U.S. and it has historic, historical roots. And, and I know about this more than anyone because I'm the number one target of the anti-science, anti-vaccine movements. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, refers to me in his public messages as the OG villain, which I had to look up. The original gangster. The original. So, so yeah. you're talking to the original gang because I wrote a book called "Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism" uh, to debunk all the fake links. So this really accelerated. Um, this really accelerated in uh, 2015. So the anti-vaccine movement's been around for a couple of decades after the fake paper. Um, alleging links between MMR vaccine and autism. It was in the Lancet in 1998. But then it took this very odd twist in 2015 linked to the far political right. It, um, you know, it coincided with uh, President Trump's election run in 2015, whether that's cause and effect, you know, we could be debated by historians, but it took on this new flavor under the guise of medical freedom, health freedom, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a libertarian movement. It actually probably started in Orange County around the time of the measles epidemic there. And the state wanted to close vaccine exemptions, but it quickly shifted over to Texas and Oklahoma where political, well-funded political action committees forms, PACs formed. And um, then you started to see large numbers of kids not being vaccinated because parents said this interferes with our freedom and uh, our health freedom as the term was. And, and also folded in were conspiracy theories and faux links to autism. And it got to the point where we, you know, started seeing 72,000 kids being denied access to their vaccinations in the state of Texas. And that had nothing to do with the homeschooled kids. So we have 350,000 homeschooled kids right. and who knows how many of those were not being vaccinated. So this was building up and that's when I got more involved because as a vaccine scientist working in Texas and running a big group and a lab and uh, developing vaccines and also the Dean of our school of tropical medicine, 
but you know, and I said, you know, if I don't stand up for this, who will? Because I have this daughter with autism and adult, I have four adult kids, and mm-hmm. I wrote this book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, and to debunk all the autism links and explain what autism is. So it put me right smack in, in front of this thing and this anti-vaccine train. And and then it morphed again in 2020. It Well, a couple of things happened. One, then Robert F. Kennedy got involved at the national level and started forming uh, children's health defense. And if you remember, uh, right before President Trump was inaugurated, he came out and said he'd been uh, tasked with heading a vaccine commission, which, you know, who knows what that would have looked like. And then uh, in 2020, what was an anti-vaccine movement glommed on protests against uh, social distancing and mass and contact tracing. So you had now a conflation of mm-hmm. anti-mask, anti-vaccine, and political extremism on the far right. And all of those things kind of merged together. And then you saw it export to Western Europe last summer. You, uh, there were these big right. an- combined anti-mask, anti-vaccine protests in Berlin and Paris and London and and New York Times and BBC reported that was linked to QAnon and far right wing extremist groups. So you, what you're seeing now is this kind of uh, confederacy of political extremism on the far right, anti-vaccine, anti-science groups. And then and then to make it all the more fun, you have the Russians piling on with bots and trolls. And, right. And it, it's and so I've been writing because, you know, I'm so well positioned to address this. I've been writing and speaking about it uh, in part to try to understand it all because there's no roadmap really to to go by. And you have to also be very careful how you message it, too, because, you know, you start going on about far right wing extremist groups and and QAnon and the Russians and yeah, I know. Andy, you start sounding like yeah. someone who throws things at the TV at night. So, so trying to find a, a way to say this and sound credible is in itself a challenge. Well, there's so many streams there that you were just, you know, articulating really well for us. I mean, one is, you know, par- parents who, who have concerns about the autism diagnosis and vaccine in one group. Um, but then, but then, you know, but and, then the, the but then the politicization of it that yeah, exactly. that was the for me that was the game changer in 2015, and that's when you saw people tying um, uh, dislike or distrust of science with being part of the far right wing of the Republican Party. That that to me was the really strange piece because you know historically. There's been nothing anti-science about the Republican Party. I mean, NASA was started in the Eisenhower administration and George W. Bush, you know, created PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, and our our neglected tropical disease program was started under Bush. So it it was it was odd, you know, and Mm -hmm. I still don't understand how and why. That that all happened because it's so self-defeating and so self-destructive. And we've seen waves of anti-expert. politics in American history and, and anti-science politics in American history. I, I want to ask you, I mean, how much do you see, see this as a battle that can be, maybe one is the, is the, maybe battle is the wrong metaphor, but I mean, if it's a contest over values in the public square, what's it going to take to, to move trust, you know, to, to erode some of that um, building 
um, anti-science politics that you've identified here? Well, I think a few things have to happen. I mean, the level of communication has been poor, you know, especially around COVID-19 vaccines. Right. Op Operation Warp Speed was a good program in terms of of scientific integrity and rigor, but there was never communications attached to it. It was left to the pharma CEOs who did a generally poor job in, as, as communicators. So that was one problem. And so what you're so all of 2020, I'm on Zoom calls about how we fix the message, you know, get the message out about, you know, COVID-19 vaccines are safe, they're not rushed. And and I can go through that with you. But you know, then I say it's, you know, fine to have the message out. But then I deflate everybody by saying, well, but that message is a message in a bottle in the Atlantic Ocean because the anti-vaccine and anti-science groups, now this combined juggernaut, uh, just dominates the internet with 580, 480 fake anti-vaccine websites all revved up on social media. If you go to amazon.com and you put books up at the top, click on, click like everybody has done and you get the scroll down menu at the left, you go to health, fitness and dieting, click on that again and go to vaccinations. It's all fake anti-vaccine books, all mm -hmm. fake COVID conspiracy books. So they dominate the internet. And, and I say, you know, the message will, you know, it's good to get the message out and fine tune the message. And then I say, it'll get you 30 to 40% of the way there until we do something to start dismembering or dismantling the anti-vaccine, anti-science presence on the internet and all their other and their rallies and everything else. It's just not going to have an impact. And that's mm -hmm. where people start walking away from me, which is kind of interesting. That's on that piece. I've really been an outlier because nobody wants to touch that. Nobody, you know, it's just, that's not something academics, they say, that's not what we do. And, and that's not what the federal government does. You know, we're not going to go up against the anti-vaccine groups like you do, Peter, you know, we, that's too scary and dark a place for us. And so, and that's where it gets very lonely for me is because of, you know, often find times don't feel supported on it, but I think it's absolutely necessary. But you have been outspoken about the failures of the federal response to COVID-19. And, you know, just a few days ago in, in the Hartford Current, you had an amazing quote about Operation Warp Speed. But you said Operation Warp Speed dropped off 20 million IKEA boxes with a big sticker that says assembly required and the states yeah. are scratching their heads trying to figure this out. This, and you say it's not going to work. Um, so, you know, we've got problems with the communication. We've got problems with the logistics. What are you looking for in the Biden administration to begin to, um, you know, push back on the science dis miscommunication, the disinformation, or to begin to solve these logistics problems? Because we've seen some states may be able to take this on. Even the states that have done well have struggled. But Idaho, Louisiana, even Texas, Florida, they're struggling. Yeah, I mean, I think what I've been really pushing hard on is 
take a step back and look at the framework. Let's because people sort of lose the forest through the trees pretty quickly in this COVID-19 epidemics. It goes something like this, you know, and that's right, all through the summer, you know, I was heavily criticizing the White House Coronavirus Task Force, and basically they refused to launch a national response. It was all about putting the states in the lead, and and the result of that was we missed the entry of the virus from from Europe into New York, we failed to ever really fix diagnostic testing in the United States. We failed to halt the Southern surge uh, over the summer. We failed to halt this current surge. We're not doing any genomic virus sequencing to speak of. So we're missing UK and South African variants and homegrown variants. Every time we've called on our, our government's public health response, they've come up smaller or have been invisible. And the consequence of that and, and then you had the Scott Atlas and the whole White House disinformation campaign, you know, claiming COVID was a hoax or downplaying the severity of the epidemic or saying that COVID deaths are due to other causes or discrediting masks or spectacularizing hydroxychloroquine. The consequence of all of that means that we have nothing. We have nothing except vaccines. Our own, you know, we you know, basically we've now been backed into the, between the failure to launch a national response, the, the disinformation campaign has put us in this place where we have no other choice but to vaccinate our way out of it. That's all we have left. So here's, so Scott, here's the, the plan, the problem. We now have to vaccinate 240 million Americans against COVID-19 between now, now and later in the summer. So you do that math, that's a million to 2 million Americans every day from now until August. And the question is, can we do it? Well, first of all, we have to, we have no other choice. We, we, we can no longer take the easy route. We can no longer, this is finally a time where we really have to step up. And, and one of the things we've learned is the infrastructure is not there. Right, because you know, dropping off the IKEA boxes, what that really means is there was no national infrastructure put in place. It's basically relying on a very depleted health system, and the depleted health system is comprised of uh, Amazon Pharmacy, Walmart, um, Sam's Club, CVS, right. Rite Aid, Duane Reed, right. and the hospital chains and a few scattered community health clinics in some of the low income neighborhoods where there's pharmacy deserts that won't do it. We're not going to get to one to 2 million Americans vaccinated a day. So the first thing to do is we've got to create some infrastructure to make that happen. We've got, we've got to figure out a way how to do this in a very high throughput way. That's not currently uh, in place because we haven't really given adult vaccinations, uh, on anything like that scale. I mean, if you think where you get your adult vaccinations, where I do, I get it at our, you know, we have a big uh, grocery chain down here called HEB. That's where I get my Shingrix and Tdap. Um, And that's where a lot of Americans that won't be adequate. So, you know, how do we, you know, uh, create, uh, you're based in Philadelphia. Right. So, so, you know, the University of Pennsylvania football stadium where the Eagles football stadium where the Phillies play, how do you open that up to get high throughput vaccination and have the support staff needed uh, to make that happen and to do handle the parking and everything else? There's going to need funds for that. And is that what's your problem? Number, 
as we yeah. as we go into twenty? Is that the kind of thing you're envisioning? And I, I, that's the only th way I see getting to that kind of level of high throughput that you're going to need. It's you know you there's just so big you can make CVS right. So there's and so we're going to have to have that something like that. That's number one. And then it's not so straightforward because you still have the supply chain issue around vaccines. Right. You know, that mRNA vaccine technology is not nearly as robust as we like it in terms of scale, right? I mean, the plan behind Operation Warp Speed was never to rely on the mRNA vaccines. Those are the first ones out because you can make a piece of mRNA pretty quickly. Right. But it never had, it, the technology is too immature to rely exclusively on that. And that was always the case. So we now have to get the two adenovirus-based vaccines up, the particle vaccine, maybe our recombinant protein vaccine. And then, you've, and then you could really start doing all of those things. So all that has to happen now. I mean, you can't, uh, we don't have, because every day we wait, you know, I keep changing the number. First it was 2000 Americans dying a day, 3000 Americans dying a day. Now it's up to 4000 Americans dying a day. This is what we have to do. Well, I, I want to ask you about that because that's, that's on all of our minds and we've blown past every measure and every norm and there's a lot of concern that people have just become inured to this and said, well, it is, it's, it's, it is what it is and it'll just end when it, when it ends. That's obviously an un, unacceptable answer. And yet I'm hearing that, I mean, this is the kind of discussions early on when you heard Scott Atlas, you mentioned, talk about, you know, well, let's just go with herd immunity and, and if older people died and that's, that's yeah, the so way it is. I mean, you know, and talk about history. We've stopped, we've stopped being a nation that, is willing to do hard things. Mm. Nobody wants to do hard, you know, we, nobody wants to send a man to the moon or achieve victory in World War II or, or conquer AIDS. Nobody seems to want to do hard things anymore. They look for, and this whole business, you know, of going from two doses to one dose of the mRNA vaccines or cutting the dose in half, it's, it's sloth. It's, un, it's lack of ambition to do what really needs to be done. And so the, by doing that, you're just taking a crappy infrastructure for making vaccines, for administering vaccines and turning relatively good vaccines into crappy vaccines on top of the crappy infrastructure. That's not the answer. The answer is to fix the infrastructure and get more vaccines out there. And, and it's, it's people are scared to do hard. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when we did hard things and, and we kind of have to get back to that. But do you have a sense that this year, um, I mean, we've seen youth movements. I mean, my college classroom, I'm hearing students uh, talking in ways I've never heard them talk before about about wanting to take on these hard things. I mean, it's not impossible that these infrastructures. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the commit. I mean, the commitment um, of young people to want to do good in the world and to for public service. This is an all time high. I mean, everyone makes jokes of that younger generation, the younger generation's all in. They're, they're ready to roll up their sleeves and do stuff. It's our, my generation that's half asleep all the time and uh, it doesn't want to seem to to take this on. And so we've got to capture that youthful energy. All of this is doable, but it takes leadership and it takes, uh, uh, it takes commitment. And so what I've been telling journalists is that, look, 
the first question you need to ask every elected official you talk to or interview is what are you doing to vaccinate the American people? Mm. Got to be like, you know, what did you do during the war, daddy? Now it's, you know, what are you doing, daddy and mommy, to vaccinate the American people? And, and every elected leader needs now to um, be able to articulate right out of the starting gate what that individual has done to get people vaccinated. So thinking as we go into into 2021, can you um, say a little bit more about what, you know, we have the national vaccine strategy. Obviously, that needs revamping. There's so many things this administration is going to have to pick up. And you were touching on this a little bit earlier. But who are going to be the key players to watch here? We're going to have a new secretary of HHS. We're going to have a new leadership in FEMA across the board. I know the government doesn't get a chance to redo with something like this. Um, but what are some of the very specific things you'd like to see the administration do right out of the gate? Well, you know, articulate a roadmap and plan to vaccinate the country, obviously, and then assign who's going to do it. I think one of the big unknowns for 2020 is is why did the Centers for Disease Control collapse in 2020, which is basically what happened. I mean, they, as I say, they came up small every time. They ranged from either being invisible to incompetent. And some and and everywhere in between, you know, again, failing to detect the virus coming in from Europe, um, never launching a national plan. I mean, this is why well, we pay eleven billion dollars in taxes to the CDC. You know, they're mm -hmm. supposed to be the envy of the world. Why aren't they leading a plan? Why is it that um, they took on the virus genomic sequencing project of only sequenced fifty thousand virus genomes, which you know. The University of Pennsylvania Genome Center um, used to be run by my friend and colleague David Roos. I don't know if he's still running it now, but um, should be able to do that in in a period of months, right? I mean, uh, Penn alone. I mean, why come up so small on that? Um, also, the guidelines from ACIP, which are very fussy and not even operate. You can't even operationalize it. So you know, everyone's the most what most people will say. Well, it's been the White House incursions and it's been the Trump White House, and and I'm sure that's true, but I sense there's a big there's a big infrastructure problem there, and that has to be addressed. Also, we have to have the CDC in charge, running this, and they have to be good again. And you know how do we do that? That's going to be another thing that I'm that I'll be uh, looking for, and 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 no more failures. I want to mm. see stuff get done, and. Um, and I want to see the American people get vaccinated, and we have to do this. And you think it gets harder for governors in states that have not been willing to follow mask mandates or that might have been moving slowly on the vaccine, this relationship where no longer they can look to the White House for cover. You're going to have a president, presumably, who's going to really take on the science communication piece of this. What do you expect governors to do in states that have been intransigent on this? Do you think they'll fall in line with the White House or is this just gonna be the continuation of this Trump era? That's right, you know, is it gonna be this kind of political posturing? And again, tying your, you know, showing your allegiance to the far right wing of the Republican party by being anti-science. We've gotta somehow break that um, because it's just, it has no historic, it has no basis in the history of the Republican Party, it's quite the opposite. I mean, the National Academy of Sciences was founded 
under Abraham Lincoln, a, a Republican uh, president. Right. Um, and and as I said about NASA and everything else, we have to kind of figure out a way to, to fix that again and and get people to understand the historic the history of this. I mean, why do you know people why do people admire the United States? Yes, the military is a component, but the other piece is the our research universities and institutions. You know, I when I served as U.S. Science Envoy for the State Department in 2015, 2016, the Obama administration. You know, I got to meet government leaders all over the Middle East, North Africa, hmm. and they all trained at U.S. universities, sure. right? And and did even their doctoral degree or master's, degree. and not even, and not even just you know the Harvard, MITs, and Penns, and Stanfords, and and Berkeleys, right? They were at University of Iowa or Iowa State or University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I mean. These are our national treasures, and these are our greatest ambassadors. We've got to find a way to get people to get on board with that again. So I'd like to go back a, a little bit. I, I don't know. Maybe you had anticipated in your career that you'd be working uh, on this compressed time frame at some point in your life on a coronavirus, but you've been, you've been working on vaccines now your, your whole career. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first got into that work? And, and why it has remained intellectually satisfying to you? Well, ever since I was a, you know, a undergraduate, I wanted to make vaccines for tropical diseases. That was sort of a, probably the most goal-directed person you'll have on the show. I'm doing now at 62 what I wanted to do at 22, even earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, this lifelong dream to make vaccines that no one else will make because they're for diseases of the poor. And we've you know, have vaccines for diseases like hookworm and schistosomiasis and Chagas disease in clinical trials. Um, and then we adopted a coronavirus vaccine about a decade ago, working with a group out of the New York Blood Center um, that uh, kind of work, began working with us because those vaccines were orphaned as well back then. Nobody really cared about coronavirus vaccines. And so it's being basically a physician scientist. And that I always wanted a new, I, I would... I wanted to do that. I think the newer piece is the public engagement and mm. science communication. That's a more late onset adult affectation that that really started when I, before this job, I was chair of microbiology at GW and being in Washington, just got caught up with that and found I liked it and found mm. I, I had a voice communicating about pandemic threats and neglected diseases and neglected tropical diseases. And so ever since I've been trying to balance those two worlds of being a scientist and yet, you know, keeping a foot in that public engagement. And then, you know, having that decade of experience with coronaviruses and coronavirus vaccines positioned me pretty well when, when COVID-19 emerged. And, and I find it very meaningful to be able to talk to the American people, but it's also a lot of pressure too. If you get it wrong, you hear sure. about it pretty quickly. Um, I think for one of the things that I've realized about science communication is um, I try to thread the needle between the two major mistakes that people make. And and the one of the common ones is the lapsing into jargon and being able unable to ex explain the science without using overly technical words. But that's actually not the most common mistake people make. The most common is what we heard from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Somebody in a school of communications or journalism school 30 years ago told all the scientists that they have to speak to the American people like they're in the fourth grade or sixth grade. Cool. And um, 
and and I think that maybe worked before something called the internet came along and, right. and <laughs> <Yeah>. social media. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and people are a lot more sophisticated. And you know, the greatest one of the best compliments I ever got. I I, I became a writer also in the last decade. I've written four books, single author books, and. Uh, my publisher at Johns Hopkins University Press, Robin Coleman, said to me, Peter, you know, you're, what you you have the knack for is you're able to, co you know, communicate complex scientific concepts without the jargon, but without sounding like you're condescending or talking down to people. Yeah. So, and that's something I work on all the time. And, uh, and it's, and, and it's very meaningful, but, and very needed too, because in this absence of communication, it's being filled by the anti-science right. group. So one said. of the things I've been writing and speaking about is we need to train a whole cadre of scientists who are willing to engage the public and speak to the public. And the young scientists are all in. It's Again, we don't have the infrastructure put in place to make that seem like a welcomed activity. Um, you know, academic health centers don't usually don't like their scientists and their docs speaking to the public. They, they're obsessed about controlling the message and and uh, and they don't care if you're talking about social justice or combating anti-science. They're worried about they're very risk averse. And so to be a scientist or a physician engaging the public, it's you do it at great peril because sure. it's not looked upon as as a welcomed activity or even an important activity. Well, and I'm sure it's the same in science as it is in humanities and social sciences. Tenure committees don't look at media appearances as criteria. That's right. Absolutely. We have to change I mean, the incentive I, game. Yeah. Am I, you know, on my annual evaluation form, you, you know, I get evaluated like everybody else, even though I'm a dean and a professor, you know, it's got a place for my grants and it's got a place for my papers, scientific papers, and it's got a place for my grants, and it's got a place for my scientific papers, right. and it's got a place for my grants, and it's got a place yeah. for scientific papers. Yeah. And yeah. and the idea that, you know, there's Appearance no... There's not even, Maddow doesn't, in, there's in, no in a, line for that. No, yeah. I mean, you know, even in an academic health center, they even care about your books, right? They don't, they're, that, that books, what, what is, yeah. what kind of revenue do books bring in, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. especially with academic presses, right? So, or, you know, who cares about op-eds you've written or media appearances or, so there it's, so the message is set in a very, not even subliminal way, pretty explicit way. This, this is not valued by your institution. So if you're young, especially if you're a young person trying to start out, all of this stuff that you're trying to do to do the public engagement is seen as either frivolous, you know, unimportant, or even worse than an annoyance is a threat to the institution. And you throw that to the mix and it, it, it's a showstopper. We're, we're almost up on time. I just want to circle back something you talked about, your, your fascination, your career working on vaccines for diseases, um, diseases that strike in poor parts of the world uh, and one of the things we've learned this year, we shouldn't have had to learn it, but the enormous health inequality in the United States and, you know, communi communities of color being um, unequally impacted by the pandemic and also the economic implications of that, which are all, all rolled in. So to a certain extent, I, I wonder if it's been strange for you somehow, you know, it, so much of your focus has been um, on these other kinds of diseases, on parasites, for example. And now, you know, people are rediscovering poverty in America, it seems like. Not everyone, not as many people yeah, as you think. But it's been front page news again. 
these these help in yeah, it. Yeah, well. and I, and and you know, I've really tried to shine a spotlight on using that global health lens on diseases of the poor in the U.S. Mm. So in 2016, I wrote a book called Blue Marble Health that actually points out when you add up where all the poverty-related neglected diseases are, yes, they're in fragile nation states in Africa and Asia, but overwhelmingly they're in G20 countries. Hmm. The group of 20, it's the poor living among the wealthy that now account for most of the world's poverty-related neglected diseases. And I have a chapter in the U.S., where I estimate there's 12 million Americans living with a poverty-related disease, but they're often off the beaten track. And so one of my faculty members, Rahelia Mejia, worked with uh, environmental activist uh, uh, Catherine Coleman Flowers. We found hookworm in, Alabama, in rural Alabama. So the point is these diseases are actually they're not even rare. They're pretty common. It's just that they're occurring among the poor, so they go sight unseen. And so now we've been working with Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey and a Republican congressman, um, Chris Smith and Hank Johnson from Atlanta to file legislation. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, you know, trying to spend decades raising awareness about neglected diseases of poverty in Africa, and it hasn't been that hard. I mean, people sort of got it. You know, there was AIDS, there's malaria, there's TB, now there's neglected tropical disease, that fourth leg. But when you talk about diseases of the poor in the U.S., the lights just go out quickly. I mean, mm. nobody wants to talk about it. And so I've been really struggling. That's been one of the hard, that's, you know, after hitting a home run, you know, raising a lot of money and getting billions of people treated on neglected tropical diseases. The, you know, I say, hey, this advocacy stuff's not so hard. And then right. I started trying to raise awareness about neglected diseases of the poor in the U.S. It's been a hard slog. And now with COVID-19, that's going by the same playbook. It's disproportionately affecting low-income neighborhoods because the nature of the essential work. And, you know, you you know, if you're working in a bakery or a family-owned business or on construction sites, you, you're not working via Zoom and Skype, right? Yeah, um, so, absolutely. So they're getting hit hard and they live in multi-generational homes. And so they're bringing it home to mom and dad or grandma or grandpa and they're getting decimated. So especially in the Hispanic communities, they've been hit especially hard. So I testified to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and I called it historic decimation of Hispanic communities and pretty much the same with the African-American communities. I mean, we're seeing 30 to 35% of the deaths under the age of 65 in these communities. It's so that's been really tough to get people to care about. Um, uh, that's, you know, one of the hidden aspects of this uh, COVID-19 epidemic. And, and it's, I'm running to the same struggles around COVID-19 that I did with the other uh, neglected disease of poverty. So the first time was a home run. The second one, I struck out uh, neglected disease of the poor in the U.S. And the third one, right? Uh, maybe I'm going to get a, a single out of it, um, wow. fighting the anti-vaccine movement. So it's it's so you know my advocacy and public engagement. I don't try to be everything to everybody. I tend to say, okay, here I'm a subject matter expert. There's a vacuum. There's a gap. I have unique knowledge. I'll fill it with that and it's and i i love it and it's and with varying degrees of success all i can say is thank you for what you do and keep doing it thanks and it's an honor to speak with you today and uh thank you for carving out a little time i know every day is busy uh, i was really happy to talk with you uh today particularly coming after everything we saw yesterday because i again i think you've got a unique position to speak as a scientist who's also engaged 
in the politics of our moment. And I don't see how anybody can can disentangle those things anymore. And when they try to, I think they're being dishonest. Well, that's that's the fight, right? I mean, um, you know, because the what are you, what what you're told is a scientist. Okay, you're a scientist. Don't try to talk about the politics. Just stick to the science. Stay in your lane. Stick to the science. Stick to the science. But you know, when 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 the disinformation campaign started, first of all, I, I knew about disinformation campaigns going up against the anti-vaxxers all these years. I, I could smell a disinformation campaign a mile away, and these guys had all the, every aspect of the playbook down, and right. and the only way to disentangle the politics from the anti-science was to call it out and required you to get your hands dirty talking about politics. And a lot of people don't understand. It's not that I want, you know, I don't like throwing darts at the white house. I mean, that wasn't, that's a scary place to be. And you could imagine yeah, sure. emails and the, oh, yeah. you know, and all the other crazy stuff, but there was no other way to do it. And then when people say, well, you know, what you're doing is inappropriate. Even my colleagues say you shouldn't be going into that political realm. Well, I didn't go into the political realm. They did. I'm just trying yeah. to disentangle it, but it's, again, it's, it's a it's a tough place to be. I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. We'll continue our discussions uh, tomorrow of vaccines. So please do uh, join me for that. We'll be talking about law and policy and vaccines and COVID-19. Um, be talking with Ross Silverman and Delete Reese and Tara Hyel tomorrow. So please do join me for that. And, and I want to thank you again, Peter Hotez, for your time and for all you're doing. Thanks Thank you. And, th and thanks for what you're doing. Uh, you know, you're providing an enormously important service uh, doing this. And and uh, this is what universities should be doing. So thank you. All right. We'll see you soon. Stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Five o'clock.